anyways, our anchor text tonight is going to be Isaiah chapter 53. Um, but before we get into that, I'm going to introduce a little concept just to um, add some extra depth and meaning to the text that we are delving into today. In my small group, shout out to my pursuit of God's small group, um, a common topic that we've been talking about is when you look at the world with the intention of seeing God and understanding his character, you begin to see his fingerprints literally everywhere. One of the members of my small group in particular has even talked about how when doing her homework, she has been seeing God through the order of math and science. This attesting to the fact that God is a God of order and not of chaos. Therefore, everything in creation has a process and an order to it, which is really beautiful. Recently, we celebrated Easter, and if you followed the Passion Week reading, um, there's a verse that you might have come across that you've probably heard in several, several worship songs. It's in Luke chapter 19, verse 40. And it's about when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and I'm sure you know this story. It's when he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone is crying Hosanna and laying down their cloaks and laying down palm branches and the Pharisees approach Jesus and they tell him teacher rebuke your disciples like make them be quiet because the Pharisees are afraid of making a ruckus of it seeming like chaos of it seeming like a mob because the Romans would come down on them pretty hard if it seemed that way. But then Jesus answered with a phrase. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I think there's certainly a miraculous aspect to this phrase from Jesus, but honestly, I think until we study mineral, minerals and take a geologic geology class, which my geological engineers in here can probably attest to this, I don't think we can fully understand the depth to what Jesus means. Because very literally, on a molecular level, creation attests to the creator. And it, it is crying out. Literally, the rocks are crying out that there was a creator that once created order and created all of us. And humans are a part of that creation. And as a result, many of our own ideas of how the world works reflect who God is, even more so because we were made in the image of God, not just made by God's hands, but also made in his image. Now, some of these conclusions are distorted by sin, but some ring true even from a secular perspective. Um, my husband, Chase, and I, he's been listening to several different podcasts, and I'll listen to them with him whenever we are driving on the road. And on a particular drive um, this past weekend to visit my parents, I kept pausing the podcast every time I heard something that was either from the Bible or was um, from a Christian worldview. 
And it was a secular podcast, and they were talking about ideal communities in which people want to live. They were talking about the importance of community and of people relating to one another, the importance of feeling as if you're part of something bigger, the kingdom of God, the importance of being able to connect with nature, God's creation, the importance of people helping one another and communicating with one another. Sounds like the church. Eventually, I stopped pausing it because Chase was definitely getting a little bit annoyed at all of the interruptions. But it was so striking to me how people can't help but testify to the nature of the God that they were created in the image of, even when they're unaware of it. These new um, ideas about different things, like they are ages old derived from the character of God and who God is and who we were created to be because we are created in the image of God. There's a common um, concept in literature and that's the concept of archetypes. Now there were other ways to illustrate this but I'm landing on this one because it had some really helpful pictures and I know you guys like pictures. But in literature, there are 12 common archetypes for character development. This idea began actually in ancient Greek culture when dramas were being performed in amphitheaters. And the 12 archetypes are the innocent, the explorer, the sage, the hero, the outlaw, the magician, the everyman, the lover, the jester, the caregiver, the creator, and the ruler. Now, these are 12 categories of characters that really smart people throughout the ages have relied upon to create believable characters in their writing. And I don't believe that this is an accident. Creation is orderly down to the people that make it up. There's a place for everyone and a role for all to fulfill. And it goes without saying that the characters in the narrative are not usually aware of what role they're assigned, but I, I find peace in the fact that there is a place for everyone and an innate order to things because we were created by a God of order. This being said, I want to turn our gaze to the life of Christ. As I was studying for this sermon, the truth that kept invading my mind was that Jesus is the archetype of humanity. And I couldn't get this word out of my head, archetype, archetype. It kept coming back to me. And I wasn't, it wasn't until I sat down at my computer to write out my manuscript that I started reading through the archetypes of literature. I came across this concept of the 12 archetypes in literature. And I couldn't help but see Jesus in every single one of them. He was the innocent lamb of God. He was an explorer. He traveled many different places with his disciples. He was a sage. He was a hero. He was an outlaw. He was a magician. He performed miraculous signs. 
And he was in every man relating to everyone. He was a lover of the, the creator wooing his creation back to himself. There were times he was a jester. He did make jokes, which is interesting. He was a caregiver. He is the creator, and he is a ruler. And you see, Jesus is 100% human, I, even more so than us because he was unfragmented by sin. I mean, he was the original original blueprints of what we were supposed to be in this world. And he it was able to experience emotions in their purest form, untainted by sin. And I know we've heard the phrase a thousand times, what would Jesus do? But this overused Christian phrase has a ring of doctrinal truth because Christ is our archetype the ideal human. We're to shape and model our lives after who he was and who he is. That's not to say that we aren't all unique individuals. We all have our likes and dislikes and strengths and weaknesses. We're all gifted in different ways for different purposes. But in handling the living of life, we are to model our actions and our reactions after those of Christ. As a human, as a Christian, our archetype is Christ. Literally calling yourself a Christian, you're calling yourself a little Christ. And lucky for us, we have the Bible, the inspired word of God to inform us of the character of the God we serve and also the character of the Savior that we are to emulate. So the sermon series about suffering, right? So let's talk about suffering. In the past weeks, we have covered many, many, many different aspects of suffering. Last week, Nicholas talked about lamentations and how we lament the seriousness of sin and also the importance of remembering the suffering. And the week before, Shandy spoke of suffering as discipline and as a consequence for our actions. And last, I spoke about the theology of suffering in Ecclesiastes and how everything, including suffering, is meaningless without God. And the moral of the story is we've been talking a lot about suffering. And we do this because it's important. We live in a broken and sinful world, and as a result of that, we are guaranteed to experience suffering in this life. It will make all the difference going forward in your lives if you hold on to these teachings and allow them to sink into your minds. This week I'm going to talk to you about Jesus as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Now we've already established that Jesus is our archetype as Christians and as humans in general. This means that we need to pay attention to how he handles his sufferings 
and learn from him. Let's start reading in Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Let's establish this first. Christ suffered. And I know you guys know that, and I know we just went through Easter, but we need to keep that present in our minds. Now, one thing to note historically about this, these two verses is that it uses the phrase being high and lifted up. And that was actually a euphemism in the Roman world for being crucified. Crucifixion was, and to this day still is, one of the most brutal forms of execution because the Romans were first and foremost in discipline. I mean, that was, that was one of their prerogatives, Pax Romana, keeping the peace. And one of the ways they did that was they punished anyone who threatened that peace. And they were good at it. But crucifixion being so gruesome and, and so unspeakable, people didn't like to talk about it. So they had other ways of talking about it, such as being lifted high, being lifted up. And it's interesting because crucifixion was actually invented by the Romans, and this was written by Isaiah a long, 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 long time before the Romans were even a thing. And so isn't it interesting that even hundreds of years before Christ was crucified or even crucifixion was a thing, Isaiah says that he will be high and lifted up and suffer this incredible pain. It's it just blows my mind. I love that. Now, in Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to continue reading in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of God been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So Jesus was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So we can take from this, we as Christians can expect to be despised. We can expect to be rejected, and we can expect to be acquainted with sorrow and grief. Just because we're Christian doesn't mean that we're exempt from the brokenness of this world. In fact, we will experience more sorrow and grief because we are aware of what creation was meant to be. We see the perversion, and our hearts break along with the heart of God. Also, we were called to live differently than the world. We have a different purpose, and some will resent you for that. Yet, we are called to love those who persecute us, and this is the life we were called to. 
I can't imagine how painful it was daily for Christ to walk the streets, having intimate knowledge of what creation was meant to be, and also knowing the heart of God. I think we are numb to it most of the time. We're, we're numb to the groanings of creation, but that wasn't an option for Jesus. He couldn't be numb to the groanings of creation. He couldn't be numb to the evil around him. Every cry of pain was a stab to his heart. Every illness, a heartbreaking reminder of man's rejection. Let's continue reading in verse four, four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He knows our griefs. He bears them along with us, yet we disregard him most of the time. We keep choosing things other than him, yet he remains faithful. He humbly accepted the punishment that was meant for us. So what can we as Christians, as little Christ, learn from how he treats us? Let's continue reading in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed and he said nothing. No complaint, no casting blame. In fact, he even begged God to forgive those who were crucifying him. How much more so should we pray for those who are set against us, that disagree with us, those that disregard us because of our faith? How much do we complain in suffering? Yet he opened not his mouth as he was being led to the slaughter. In verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was innocent and still accepted the judgment Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Okay, this part is really important, so pay attention to this. He surrendered himself to the will of the Lord, the Father, to be crushed for the sins of others. But it was through his suffering that he saw hope for creation to be restored. He walked this earth day in, day out, feeling, hearing, seeing the suffering of his beloved creation. It was out of the anguish of his soul that he saw and was satisfied. He saw a future where suffering could be alleviated, and he counted his suffering in the moment to be trivial compared to the future kingdom he was establishing in his death. And so now we are also called to death, death to ourselves. You see, we have a part in establishing that kingdom through our suffering here on earth. We endure and stay faithful so that the beautiful promise can be delivered in our lives and in the lives of others. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his spirit to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is the promise. He makes intercession for us so that one day we may enter into the throne room and be restored and renewed to our intended design. Minus sin, minus pain, minus suffering. So let's take a look at how Jesus handled suffering in his present moment. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I love this passage because you can so very clearly see the humanity of Jesus. He is in anguish because he knows the suffering to come. Yet he also knows that it is the price to pay for the, restor the restoration of his beloved creation. And how does he know all this? 
the Old Testament. He was Jewish. And as a Jew, he was required to memorize a great portion of the Old Testament as a child. And so he has this word hidden in his heart, and now he has the illumination, and he knows the messianic prophecies. He knows that those passages are about him because he knows he is the son of God, that he is the savior. And so as he kneels there in the garden, he is praying that God would give him relief because he's human. And as a human, he doesn't like pain. He doesn't like suffering. But in the end, he surrenders to the will of the Father in heaven. So with Jesus as an archetype of us, how should we handle suffering? Jesus didn't complain. He surrendered. Jesus didn't stray from the path. He asked God to guide him. Jesus found comfort in the power of God and turned to prayer. You see, the amazing thing was the Romans weren't the ones leading Jesus to be slain. God was the one leading Jesus to be slain. They were doing it together. Jesus humbling himself and God the Father sacrificing so that we could enjoy eternity with them. In the end, we come back to the title that's often given our passage in Isaiah, The Suffering Servant. And I think that perfectly portrays our role in suffering modeled after Christ. We are to suffer humbly, leaning on our master, the Lord, for deliverance, not boasting in our hardship, not seeking ref refuge in ourselves or those around us, but ultimately surrendering to the Father, our God, our omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, present everywhere in all things creator. We are to be suffering servants, just as our Savior was before us.